0: morning. We are thankful that you are here this morning. It's a bit of a dreary day, of course, but we're thankful for the good crowd that is here. We want to begin by wishing all of you a happy holiday season. Although we don't celebrate here at the congregation necessarily as a religious holiday, we're thankful for the season of the year. We're thankful for the season of giving that many feel. Thankful for the season of family that we get to enjoy. I think I'm even going to have a spirit of forgiveness this morning. I'm going to forgive Don for upstaging me with his red jacket and his white beard. Uh, my wife has already complimented him on his jacket, so I think uh, I'm going to be kind and forgive Don for trying to upstage the preacher. But uh, we hope that you'll have safe travels. Many of you, we hope that you have safe travel first and foremost today and tomorrow, as we're expecting a lot of rain. But Hope that if you're going to be leaving during the week and traveling that you'll have safe travel to uh, and fro wherever you may travel during this season. I think next Sunday will probably be a little smaller in number as many will be gone between uh, Christmas and New Year's. But we hope that, uh, that you have safe travels wherever you go. If you're going to be able to be back with us tonight, we would encourage you to do so. If you have a bulletin and you've already peeked at the sermon for tonight, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit of a year in review for us here at Sadi. Last year we did it the last Sunday night of the month excuse me, of the month, but of the year. Uh, but knowing that there will be several folks that will probably be gone next Sunday, we decide to go ahead and bump it up uh, to this Sunday night. Uh, it's always fun. I have fun myself uh, putting it together, looking at pictures and thinking about all the good things we've done this year. So we hope that you can be back with us. And for those of you who are our members, you might just find yourself in the slideshow somewhere as we talk about all the good things that have happened at Saudi this year. Uh, Before we begin this morning, I feel like I need to address one of those elephants that sometimes gets in the room from time to time. Uh, Some of you may have seen this on social media or this week on the news, but the Pew Research Center released a study this week, and the main thrust of it was sermon length. They computed nearly 50,000 sermons, I believe, during the months, if I read it correctly, of April and June. They only took sermons that they could find online, interestingly enough, of course, that they could access. I don't think they listed exactly what congregations, you know, in the study. They wanted to kind of keep that private, but I, I would assume it's possible that they might have pulled a sermon or two from people in the Chattanooga area. Of course, as they look around. Uh, The United States, I believe in particular, uh, was the the goal there. The study says a nationwide analysis, Uh, but they looked at words that were used, but they also talked about sermon length. So just in case any of you maybe saw this or didn't see this, I just wanted to share this with you. If you look at the median length in minutes of sermons, I believe that we might get grouped in the evangelical category. The average sermon is 30 Nine minutes. Now, I'm not saying anything, all right? I'll let you deduct from this what you want to. But of all sermons, and they looked at, of course, they kind of broke it down into different denominations or different groups. The average sermon was 37 minutes. And so I'll just leave that with you right there, and we'll see. You can do your own analysis of ours if you want on the podcast that you can find online, but I thought that was very interesting there. If the median of all sermons is 37, there are definitely some that are much over uh, 37 and even 39. So I came across that this week, and I'll just let you do with that what you will. So we're already three minutes and 31 seconds in, so we need to go ahead and get started here. All right, off we go. Which picture on the screen best describes your life? Now, this is not a trick question. Uh, you know, as I was thinking about asking it that way, I thought some people are going to think, well, this is, uh, you know, this is one of those questions that you get asked for like a brain test, you know, or a memory test or something. One of those things that describes what kind of personality you have. But it's not a trick question. It's not a, a test uh, question to see if you have any kind of a brain issue or anything. But, but which of the two pictures on the screen then best describes your life? Well, to further describe, let me introduce you to a man we'll call Steve. Just for argument's sake, Steve gets up on Monday morning. Steve goes, uh, gets ready to go to work, and he puts on his work shirt. And he goes and he spends the day at work, works very hard for his family, comes home on Monday night, takes his work shirt off, and puts it aside, and then he puts on his his home shirt or his home clothes, what he's going to be around the house in with his family and with his wife and his kids. And Steve does this every day. I mean, just, you know, five days a week, he works hard. Uh, for his family, sometimes overtime and things, but he just does it every single day. Puts on his work shirt in the morning, t- comes home, takes it off, puts on his home clothes, his home shirt to be with his family. On Saturday, Steve gets up and he pulls out his golf shirt. He's going to go be with his friends. He's going to spend a little time on the golf course, shooting a round of golf and have a good time with his friends. He'll come home and take that off and put his home clothes back on again to be with his family. And then on Sunday morning, Steve gets up, he takes out, opens the drawer, pulls out his Sunday shirt and tie, puts it on, gets ready to go to church services and to be uh, with folks there on Sunday morning. And Steve does this kind of over and over again. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but Steve would fit into the left-hand picture there on the screen. There's a big title that psychologists would use to give this an idea, to give this a, a process. They call it compartmentalization, compartmentalization. To compartmentalize or to practice compartmentalization simply means the division of something. In this case, as we're talking about our life, the division of our life into sections or categories, or in this term, compartments. It makes good sense. Think about it in the business world. In the business world, We take the the salespeople, we stick them in an office, and we take the shipping folks, and we put them out into uh, the the plant area with the plant folks where the trucks are going to be coming by. And and even at home sometimes, we we take our our shoes, and we don't put them in the fridge. Uh, We've got a place for our shoes in the closet and maybe even compartments within that area. And we, we take our clothes. We don't put our clothes in the pantry with the bread and the cereal and the food, that wouldn't make any sense. We have a place for our food, we have a place for our clothes, we have a place for our shoes. So in a general sense, to compartmentalize, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not anything that's evil. uh, To divide our, our life into some type of section or the things that we use into section, it just makes good sense. But the problem comes... The problem comes in when we adopt the mindset of a phrase that's borrowed from the great poet Rudyard Kipling, who said, East is east, and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. That's when the problem can come in sometimes. Or maybe I I thought a better way to describe it, it, we're just coming off the Thanksgiving season, so some of you are going to identify with this, but I think the better description uh, to describe this kind of concept is the perfect plate for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. A compartment for all your food, so none of them are touching. Now, I see those of you who are smiling because you want this plate, uh, but you don't have to raise your hand to recognize that that's the way you treat your Thanksgiving meal. You want a section for everything, and never the twain shall meet. I don't want my food touching at all, and some of you agree with that. That's the way we treat our lives sometimes. That's the concept that we're going to discuss for just a few moments this morning. As we near the end of the year, we become contemplative. Uh, we reflect, if you will, it's not going backwards, there we go. We reflect, if you will, on our lives. We, we self-examine to see what we need to maybe get rid of or shed in the new year and what we want to add to our lives. So I thought it'd be beneficial for us this morning to discuss this topic, to think about compartmentalization as we kind of begin to examine ourselves and think about how we may want to be better in the new year, then this is something that we need to consider you see, when it comes to the different parts or compartments of our lives, we're thankful very often that there's some boundaries. You know, I used to say about my job in the steel industry that although maybe my pay was a little lower than those of the managers and, and others that were above me, I got to leave it all at work. There were boundaries, there were compartments. When I came home, I, I left my work shirt at, at work so that I didn't have to worry about it. I wasn't getting calls in the middle of the night or having to check emails. So there were some boundaries. Like our example of Steve, I could just leave it. I could come home and put my family clothes or shirt on and be with my family. But Steve's problem in our example and the problem of many others was that his Christianity was in his Sunday drawer or compartment. And he acted as if he could take it off and put it on and just have it only at home. You see, as we think about this concept this morning, there's nothing wrong with being a banker or a teacher or a nurse or working in the steel industry or or anywhere in between that many of you hold down different jobs in different areas of the world. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we want to focus on this morning is that we need to be a Christian blank. A Christian fill-in-the-blank, a Christian nurse, or a Christian teacher, or a Christian worker, whatever it may be. I was listening to Brother John DeBerry Jr. recently, who is a gospel preacher, and interestingly enough, some of you know John DeBerry, uh, a member of the Tennessee House of Representatives. And that's impossible, right? I mean, to be a Christian politician, we would say that's not even, uh, you can't even do that. That's just plain crazy. But what's interesting is, Brother D. Berry once said in regards to that, that he gets this question very often. He gets asked that, how can you be a Christian and still be a politician at the same time? And this is what he said. He said, the answer is real simple, because I am a Christian first. And because I am a Christian first, whatever I choose to do in my life is therefore easy because it follows where my nature and my desires and my decisions are as a Christian. And I think Brother D. Berry's right down the line of our main point this morning. You see, God has to be the center of our lives. Touching all that we are and all that we have. You can remember from that first picture there of compartments, of a dresser drawer, if you will, or a dresser of drawers, and then a wagon wheel, or as I kind of drew it there for our purposes on the screen. God in the center, touching all that we have. Not something that we just pull out and put on and set aside. And we do that with all these different areas of our life. Do we segment our lives? Home and work, business and play, family and friends. And then over here we place God and we place our Christianity. You see, compartments make things very neat. But it doesn't fit how God has asked for his people to live. And of course, like many other things, there is a central, this is a central theme to the whole Bible. In the entire Bible, we see this concept, sort of the opposite, if you will, of compartmentalization. So let's consider in the time we have left together. First of all, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter twenty and verse number three, we go all the way back to the beginning, if you will, in the book of Exodus, and we see this concept, this idea begin to be promoted. You know Exodus 20 and verse number three. You shall have no other gods before me. It's interesting there, as God is going to give this law, he almost is speaking and saying, let's get something straight up front. I am first. I will have the first place in your life. And and it's almost as if God would come down from the mountain in bodily form and speak to each person in the nation of the children of Israel that he would. He'd want to slap them around and say, understand, hear me, let's not get it confused. Let's set it straight from the beginning. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. These are the laws that would govern their lives, right? And today we're still fighting about them to an extent. I mean, people want to put them on the walls of the governmental buildings and those kinds of things, and that's great. We're, we're glad that people want to recognize God, but, but these are the laws that would carry on for a long time especially as it would actually govern the children of Israel. And those are going to begin with a declaration of priority. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the center. I am first. But we go forward a little bit further. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And verses four through nine, you are familiar with this. It is oftentimes called the Shema, which in Hebrew means to hear or listen. Now, that term calling this the Shema comes from Deuteronomy chapter six and verse number four there and that begins Hear, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And with all your strength, people still today, especially if you know anyone that claims to be Jewish, would call it the Shema because it means to hear and to follow these things. We are familiar with this particular passage, of course, because Jesus does carry it forth and say it again in the New Testament when he repeats it in Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 37. But it's even actually in Mark's account in Mark chapter 12 and verse number 30 that we get all four that we oftentimes quote heart, soul mind and strength question for you this morning what does that leave out heart soul mind and strength what does that leave out of our lives what is it what part of our lives can we then set aside and say that I can leave God out of that I don't have to include him in my basketball work or or in my job or in my family what is it heart soul mind and strength here Shema O Israel about God. What is it that we can leave him out of? Even in the Old Testament, God is saying you can't leave me out. You can't put me in a box. I have to be first. I expect to be first if you want to serve me. But what about his son? Let's go forward to the New Testament, of course, that governs our lives. What about his son, Jesus Christ? What did Jesus have to say about this idea? The Bible doesn't use the word compartmentalization, of course, but what did Jesus say about it? The Son of God would not deviate from the same message that we read about in the Old Testament. In fact, I find it interesting that as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, multiple times in Matthew, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says multiple times, verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 38, and more, You have heard it said, but now I say unto you. He's, he's drawing this line of demarcation. He's going to make a change. You have heard it said, but now I say unto you. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But now I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman. So there's a shift here, there's a bit of a change. He's showing them a better way, a new covenant. But we come to Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. You know what doesn't change? Even after all these sort of shift in their think, shifts in their thinking, you know what doesn't change? Do you know what crosses thousands of years and dispensations? Keeping God first. On that mountainside, on that day, the Son of God is giving instructions, instructions to those who would follow after Him. And as God the Father gave it on that mountain outside of Egypt, God, the son gave it on that mountainside near Galilee. I want to be first. And if you put me first, all these other matters in life shall be added unto you. We say it hundreds of times, if not more, it's not perfect. Doesn't mean God's going to sort of put the hedge of protection around us. Nothing will happen, but all these things will be added unto you when you seek first the kingdom of God. But of course, he goes further, Matthew chapter 19 and verses 16 through 22. This is Matthew's account of what we call the rich young ruler. And we we know we're familiar with the rich young ruler. He's asking these questions. He's pushing the master teacher and wanting to get an answer. And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, now don't get confused again. That's not that God's going to protect us and nothing will ever happen. The word there, of course, is mature. If you want to be mature, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Of all these questions that people are going to stop and ask, Jesus, and and we're doing this right now with our young people in Bible Bowl as we're studying the book of Luke. It's very confusing to keep up with how many different people, which leper is it, which demon-possessed person is it, which person has come and asked Jesus to do this. So, I mean, he's getting hounded with the questions, and this rich young ruler is wanting to know all of these things, and really what he's wanting to know is the key. Give me the key. What do I have to know? What do I have to do? Jesus says, go and sell all that you have. Question. Was Jesus teaching that having possessions is wrong? Was Jesus saying that you can't have golf clubs or a boat or nice furniture or a nice house? Or was he saying in everything that you have, he has to to remain your everything? Jesus continues on with this same concept. We leave Exodus and Deuteronomy, and we can even trace it through the other books if we had time. But all the way forward to the Son of God coming to this earth, and he carries with him the same concept. Give me your all. But then let's go forward to the Apostle Paul. Of course, maybe, you know, we've talked about this, but maybe second to Christ was the great man, Paul. In Galatians chapter 2, in verses 11 through 12, Galatians 2, 11 through 12, when we talk about this idea of compartmentalization— We're talking about being one thing at one time and then another thing at another time. Or being one way with one group of people and then another way with another group of people. We read here in Galatians chapter 2 of a very uh, uncomfortable situation. Because what we have is two apostles who have a problem. And described for us is Paul's account of standing up to rebuke Peter to his face. I mean, to his face, he's going to do this. Why? Why would Paul do that to Peter? The answer is because he deserved it. Because Peter was acting one way with one group of people and then another way with another group of people. The basis you may recall here from Galatians 2 is that Peter, who was the first, mind you, the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and he knew. I mean, there was no, well, I kind of forgot that. He knew they were accepted by God, but he would still shun them when he was with certain Jews. One way with one group of people, another way with another group of people. Really, Peter? Yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. And Paul told him, you can't do that. I mean, you just can't do that. You can't set God's standards aside based on who you're with. And Paul here even uses a bad word that we are trying to avoid at all costs. In verse number 13, hypocrisy. In fact, this is one of the biggest consequences of compartmentalized Christianity, hypocrisy. Think about it this way. Think think about this for just a moment because I think this may be the biggest negative to compartmentalized Christianity, the idea of hypocrisy. Non-Christians, and how many non-Christians do you know? I mean, it would take us all day to count up how many non-Christians we know, but non-Christians who pay attention and who can recognize the issue here They see a conflict between the so-called Christian who espouses love and grace and talks about going to church services and studying the Bible and truth and following all these things on Sunday. But then that same person lives by worldly standards every other day of the week. And if you think that non-Christians can't tell, then you are sorely mistaken because most are with it enough to see the hypocrisy, to see the difference. It doesn't compute. It doesn't work. And yes, it is an excuse. It is an excuse on their part to then say, I don't want to join that. It's an excuse. But we offer that excuse up to them when we try to live two different ways. One way on Sunday and another way every other day of the week. One of the biggest consequences of compartmentalized Christianity is the hypocrisy. But then Paul would write as well in Colossians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, and some of you are going to fill in the blanks, then I'm going to let you have just a second there because you may recognize that's probably not a word. And we've just made it up for our purpose this morning. Um, even Microsoft doesn't recognize it as a word in case you're wondering. But uh, Colossians chapter 3, we, we carry on with this. Not just hypocrisy, but, but Paul is going to address it. Because it was a problem in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, and in Matthew, and and Mark, and Luke, and John's account of the gospel, and when Paul is then living, it's still a problem. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul sort of sums this up. In every relationship, we must reflect the righteousness of Christ. Now, we're looking at the whole chapter here, so if you're writing down things, we're going to kind of take groups together here. But notice here, Paul is saying, if you are a Christian, and what does he say at the beginning in verses 1 and 2? Set your mind on things above. If you are a Christian, set your mind on things above. And if we do, got it, then this should affect our whole lives. And Paul's going to give three examples here very quickly. If you're jotting down verses, the first section is social. Social, verses 5 through 13. If you are a Christian, you should set your mind on things above and This should affect our whole lives. First of all, in our social life, verses 5 through 13, as you look at those, you're not going to see the word social used, but you see the interaction that we have with others, the type of characteristics that we are to avoid or put off. And verses 8 and 9, notice verse 9, do not lie to one another. I mean, that's part of it there. That's part of the connection, our social interaction. Verse 11 There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. In all of our social interactions, Christ has to be first. God has to be first. It has to affect everything that we do. But he doesn't stop there. Secondly, in the home. Notice verses 18 through 21. If your Bible has headings, mine says the Christian home. If we are going to follow after Christ or at least claim to, we have to set our minds on things above and allow him to be a part of our home life. He talks there, of course, about wives, about husbands, about children. And everybody has been involved now. But he even goes further. Thirdly, he talks about business practices. Notice chapter three and verse number twenty-through, uh, excuse me, verse number twenty-two, and it goes through chapter four and verse number one. So we've covered all uh, Colossians 3 and into chapter 4 in verse number 1. The third way is in our business practices. Notice there he talks about bond servants. He talks about servants. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he talks about masters. So in our social life, in our home life, in our business life, Paul says it has to infiltrate everything. A minute ago from Galatians, we talked about hypocrisy. But let me introduce you to another word that Paul uses here although we're kind of making it up on the fly, churchianity. You know, we spend so much time saying, you need to be here. You need to be in the building. Sunday morning, 9.30, 10.25, 6 o'clock on Sunday night, you need to be here at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. We spend so much time saying, you need to be here, you need to be here, you need to be here, and guess what? You need to be here. But one of the consequences of this mindset of saying, you need to be here, you need to be here, if we're not careful One of the consequences is that we think that being here is the only thing. You see, God doesn't just want Sunday-only Christians. He doesn't want people that are here on Sunday. That's great. You need to be here, but just on Sunday. It has to fill your every being. Everything that you do must emanate out of a life of service to the God of heaven. It has to touch every bit of our being. Every part of our lives, social, home, business, work, play, whatever words we want to toss out, God has to be the center of our lives. Let me ask you a question. Did you mean the words that we just sang? Do you even remember the song we just sang a few moments ago? He is my everything. He is my all. He is not a shirt that we take off and that we put up in the closet. He's not a hat that we can hang on the the hallway as we come in through the door. He's not a toy that we can just set aside whenever we're done with it and put it on the shelf for a later time. He's not a season of the year that we can celebrate what he's done for us one Sunday or one month until we decide to go to worship service again. He's not a pie that we can just slice off a little piece whenever we decide we want to have some. He has to be our everything. He has to be the center of our lives. He is A way of life. You see, our title this morning is actually a misnomer. It doesn't make sense in a way. It's not entirely accurate because you see, Christianity cannot be compartmentalized. Exodus, Deuteronomy, Jesus, Paul, anywhere in between. The message is Christianity cannot be compartmentalized. You can't take God off and set him aside and pull out, pull him out again, even on Sunday night or Wednesday night or Sunday morning. He has to be our everything. It means that I bring my Christianity into the workplace, into my school, into the voting booth, on the baseball diamond, in the gym, and even behind the closed doors of my home. God has to be a part of my life. In reality, I am a Christian all the time and in every place or not at all. That's the message of the Bible. And yes, compartmentalized Christianity is not even a thing. We try to make it a thing. We treat our lives as a dresser of drawers that we can open up and set our sports aside, set our God aside, pull our work shirt out, our home aside. But when it comes to God, he has to be the center, the center of our lives This morning, maybe you've never gone all in. When you submit yourself to God and you become obedient to his commands, all these things that are listed here on the screen is God's simple plan of salvation up to and including baptism for the remission or forgiveness of your sins. Then he will add you to his church, the saved, the body of Christ, and you can begin to live that life that is centered on him. For many of you this morning, you've done that. But... You've changed from that wagon wheel, if you will, to a chest of drawers, compartments, sections of your life that are blocked off from each other. And God has become one of those compartments, one of those sections. He's nice and neat there in his little box and we just try to pull them out whenever we want to. Maybe this has occurred because of sin in your life that you need to repent of, confess to him and pray for forgiveness. And he will, he will forgive you. I want to ask you this morning, as we're about to sing this song, I want to ask you to consider, like seriously consider, for just this moment, because I know how it is. We were listening to some hymns this morning on the way over in our van, and it kind of struck me for a moment how many of those words I just know. You know, I've sung them all my life, and that's great. I'm glad I have them memorized. But how many times then do we just sing because we just know the words and we don't think about the words? Seriously consider for just a moment as we sing the words to this song. Which verse are you? All of self and none of thee, some of self and some of thee. Which verse are you? You can't set him aside. Make him your all. And if you have any need to make a change, make it known as we stand together and as we sing.